For me, fashion is a verb. So it's to fashion. My name's Claire Press, and I'm Vogue Australia's sustainability editor. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis. I just think it's curiosity at the core of it. Like, I just really want to know the answer to things. You talk about revolution in 68. No, we make the revolution before. Can we just go back to making really beautiful clothes with a soul and minimize the waste and think a little before we we make things and bring back the value? Provided you wake up every morning and you're aware of the fact that your wardrobe is in the fashion supply chain, then you're a fashion decision maker. Join me every week as we talk ethics, sustainability and the business and madness of fashion. From who made your clothes to how they impact on the environment to the politics of personal style. How's your week? What have you been up to? I've been following the Zara story. Have you been reading about that? At their shareholders meeting on the 16th of July, Inditex announced new goals, including a commitment around sustainable and recycled fibres, looking at eco-efficiency in their stores and getting rid of single-use plastic. All good stuff. But then the bosses started using this language. (laughs) They said Zara has always been sustainably conscious. They talked about being the opposite of a fast fashion company. Oh my God, I was mad about this. I mean, great that this massive influential company is finally publishing detailed sustainability goals. Inditex has been way behind on this. On social media, people were rightly calling it out. Because if you produce billions of garments and speed up deliveries, if you are one of the inventors of the fast fashion model, on what planet can you claim to be slow? But also, what about people? No mention of living wages or garment workers in these goals. And actually, you could say that about a bunch of companies that prioritise the environmental side. My guest this week thinks this is broadly a problem, that in general, fashion companies are much keener to talk about circularity or even their carbon footprints now than they are about the human side. Where is the worker as the sustainable fashion debate hots up? You're about to meet Rebecca Van Bergen, founder of Nest, a New York-based NGO focused on the handwork economy. In December 2017, with multiple partners, they launched the Ethical Handcraft Program at the United Nations. And now there is something called the Nest Seal that's used across fashion and homewares and lets you know when a product has been ethically handcrafted. So far, five artisan businesses have become Nest certified and their products are sold in places like West Elm and Pottery Barn. How interesting is that, right? So it's not all about the top end of the market. And I asked Rebecca about this and she said, sustainability and artisanship has to be mainstream. Okay, Did you know that handwork or craft is the second largest employer of women in emerging economies? And a large proportion of them work from home. Since Rana Plaza, there's been heaps more attention on garment workers in factories, which is great. But how often do we talk about outworkers or home workers who've been contracted by third parties? Now, Rebecca would say that's because often they're invisible. We don't talk about them because we can't see them. This is a largely hidden and unregulated sector. Nest offers an alternative with its programmes. They're all about transparency, regulation, inclusivity and well-being. 
They're a bit like my friends at the UN Ethical Fashion Initiative, focused on fair work opportunities and pathways for women. And some of them are highly skilled in the traditional sense, so artisanal embroiderers and weavers. But also there are those who do the less skilled work that is still valuable because, remember, these are overwhelmingly women. Now, don't forget to hit subscribe. And please keep those ratings and reviews coming. Also, if you want to keep up to date, you can subscribe to my weekly EDM, Wardrobe Crisis News, which has everything you need to know about what's up with sustainable fashion. You can sign up via clairepress.com and join the conversation on Instagram and Twitter. I'm at Mrs. Press. Now, let's set the world to rights with Rebecca Van Bergen. Thank you so much for seeing me in New York in your offices, Rebecca. I'm delighted. Thank you for coming in. Oh, my pleasure. I want to start just by talking about that word artisan, because I reckon it's one of those words that because it has been splashed about so much, it's maybe in danger of losing its meaning. I've read it on a hummus packet. You know, we see it in bakeries, in chocolatiers, all kinds of things. And yet, truly, the word and the concept of artisanship is very special. I wonder if you might decode that a little bit for us to begin with and tell us what you think artisan means. Sure. I mean, I think you're exactly right. I think the word is splashed about quite a bit now, handcrafted, artisan, a lot of these types of words. And I think it does have danger because I think we just at a team meeting, we're we're having almond butter and notice that it said it was handcrafted. Probably there's not women you know, hand grinding almonds, maybe, maybe not, but I, you know, I do think exactly, exactly. So at Nest, we use the UNESCO definition, which is long and beautiful. And so I would encourage your listeners to look it up, but essentially it's that the primary aspects of the product are produced by hand and that they can use some tools and machinery as long as the primary process is guided or done in full by hand, um, which is still subsequently quite vague. But I think it's hard to kind of get at the full range of of work. We actually have we still use the term artisan, but we have started using the term hand worker yes, as I opposed to artisan because I think one of the things we've really seen is that they're on both end of the spectrum of the very high skill artisan worker definitely needs attention and support. But we've also seen a lot of women working in their homes who are practicing more manual forms of labor and that might be, you know, sewing a buttonhole or <laughs> even ironing and putting in poly bags products. And, um, and we really see value for both of those women okay. in the work that they're doing. And so really embracing handworker as a term that the women are using their hands to do the work. But that can range from kind of more manual labor mm. all the way to high skill artisan work. And that both are valuable and important. And that woman needs visibility and protection. For sure. That's actually very interesting. And I hadn't really come across obviously it's very clear what it means but I hadn't come across the use of that term until I was reading your materials yes we we were kind of struggling internally with the term because we were realizing that some of the women probably weren't artisan per se that some of the work was more manual labor but still done by hand and Mm -hmm. still really important and and hand worker is actually a term used in Germany our chief marketing officer married a German man and and so we were like oh that's so intuitive and actually quite nice and so we ended up embracing so I think it's actually a German term for artisan but historically yeah fab okay the handwork sector is the largest employer of women in emerging economies and again I didn't know that until I read your materials yeah do you want to talk to me a little bit about that like who is doing this work sure 
artisan is actually, and it's behind agriculture. So when you think about the emerging world, so you think about places in Africa or in Asia or in Central or South America, you think about what those women are doing. And in your mind, you probably actually think of that, that they're probably farming their family land or they're making something, um, whether that's embroidery or weaving or baskets. Those are two primary drivers of employment for women. And I think what's interesting about that statistic from our perspective is that you think about the number of organizations and the amount of philanthropy or investment that's gone into the agriculture economy. It's significant. And people have really embraced the scalability of working with farmers and promoting farmers as a form of livelihood. And then you think about the craft sector and terms like craft and artisan are very often perceived as being very niche or very localized. And so the level of investment has not been equal. Is that right? And so, you know, in my very biased opinion is probably because there's a lot of male farmers and there's not nearly as many male artisans. And so it feels like a very female dominated sector has been underinvested in and and And, you know, the the history of devaluing craft as inverted commas women's work work. is strong and grim. Yeah. That's exactly right. Just putting that out there. No, it's exactly right. You know, I think, and and that's still true today. I was actually just writing recently about craftivism Mm -hmm. and then looking into the history of how craft has been perceived. Mm -hmm. And that stuff is actually really, it's galling. It makes you cross. Yeah. You know, sort of silly women in a room wasting time. Exactly. Oh, let's not go there. No. Let's go where we should be going, which is, I'm going to read this statement out, which I wrote down from Nest, which I think is really powerful. And it is, the time is now to build a new handworker economy, connecting craftspeople, brands and consumers in a circular and human-centric value chain. Let's talk about your idea for a new handworker economy. And I think it's multiple things. I think one of the things we just talked about is the gender bias around the sector. The time is up for that. And the time is up for gender bias in many sectors. Um, But this is one of those places where I think that there's a lot of dated thinking about the sector as a whole that that needs to change. So that's a big one. I think another thing that we've seen is that significant portions of the production that we all consume on our in our daily lives from t-shirts to home goods that don't seem artisan are not necessarily made in a factory. And so estimates are that anywhere between 20 and 60% of current manufacturing is being subcontracted in part to a person in their home. That's a large percentage. A large percentage. And right now, kind of after Rana Plaza and, and terrible tragedies around factory production, there's been a huge amount of attention on factory work, but very little to nothing on home workers. Do you and know, so, I write about those things so often, yeah. but I haven't really thought of it in those terms. Yeah. Yeah. And so we... So um, we're really thinking about the factory supply chain, but we tend to potentially... <laughs> right. And forget yeah. this other sector. Yeah. And then the final thing I say in that statement is around circularity. And I think that's become a very big buzzword in sustainability, but it often focuses on the life cycle of a product. So product use and reuse, so recycling and the environmental footprint of production. Well, that's how I would define it. And we think that we need to kind of broaden that definition slightly to include the human. That I think that we, it's been easier in some ways for fashion to focus on environmental impact um, because I think it's, 
less appalling in some ways to picture environmental destruction than it is to picture human rights abuses. Well, I would take issue <laughs> with you there. But but I think that there's yeah. I think it's been easier for a company to come out and say mm-hmm. we have a carbon footprint than it is to say we have human rights abuses. And so I think that well, there's yeah, okay. um, so I think that's what I mean. So yeah, I think yeah. that it's we also need to make sure that when we talk about sustainability and sustainability issues that it's looking at both the environmental and the human and that um, we need change on on both sides of that the supply chain absolutely gosh semantics are interesting aren't they and how they frame things and how we end up I guess using them to our own ends in order to talk about the stuff we want to talk about and maybe not address the really grim stuff and before we started to record this we were talking about human trafficking I mean that subject is really really emotional and really difficult to take on isn't it Mm -hmm. and to even think that as consumers we could be culpable Mm-hmm. in any part of that story is kind of awful. Yeah, and I think that for us, what's interesting is that that 20 to 60% of production that gets outsourced is the most invisible and the most unregulated. And so if you're going to talk about the really yucky stuff like child labor, bonded labor, grossly unfair wages, that's where it happens mostly because mm-hmm. it's there's no paper trail, there's no regulation. And so so bringing visibility into this next tier is, is really important from a human rights perspective. So how does Nest get involved in this area and how do you seek to make change here? And I wrote something else down, which I'm <laughs> going to read out because I loved it too. But it was that the New York Times described Nest as an organization that acts as a matchmaker between artisans and companies in the fashion and home furnishing fields. I love the matchmaker idea. Do you want to just explain to us how Nest works and what exactly you do? Sure. So I think um, we work in two different ways, but we have a global network of artists and businesses. It's over 400 in over 70 countries. I think It's massive. It's massive. I think all over the world there are cooperatives or social enterprises or for-profit companies um, with artists and producers that are lacking both the skills and then also the access to expand into global markets. So we call that group the Guild and help provide pro bono consulting and support to help them develop their businesses, but then also match make with brands so that they can form visible cut middlemen and make economically profitable and successful partnerships. So that's kind of our goal is to really help artists and businesses appropriately match. I think one of the challenges is that if we were sitting in this room filled with textiles and And um, (laughs) if you're working in Varanasi in India where we are some of these silks are we're sitting next to Kit X's (laughs) textile which I just went because I recognized it which is Varanasi handwoven silk from our nest artisans but that's extraordinarily time intensive incredible intricate craft and so you know those are incredibly pricey per meter so that's Mm -hmm. probably not the right fit for some of our brands that are doing kind of more mass market consumer goods but a great fit for Kit X and so conversely we have basket weavers who can have high 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 production capability they can make lots of baskets and they have lots of women that they want to employ and so a so lot of really it is about appropriate matchmaking exactly you really are working across all exactly price points yes that's good yeah I think I had a perception that it was quite elevated because I know for instance that you've worked with Mayette and I knew that you worked with Kit but actually you are quite broad in terms of which sorts of brands you're hooking up with artisans yes we work with Target and do you uh, I did yeah. not know that yeah West Elm here in the United oh, yeah, States I knew that actually. Um, so we work with a huge range of companies and um, and I think that's important I think there are many intricate artisans that need the price point and client of a luxury brand but then I also think 
sustainability and artisanship has to be has mainstream. Has to embrace the more affordable end yeah. of the market because, I mean, that beauty of that connection of handwork and the feeling of emotion that comes from someone making something with their hands, mm-hmm. you know, that's really important. And I do feel like often in the sustainability conversation, we can make things just far too inaccessible, you know? <laughs> like not everyone can afford to have that incredible, beautiful, hand-embroidered, yeah. super-duper thing. And there's so, you know, if it's the second largest employer of women, there's a lot of women in the world that need employment. And so we also need to be able to produce things at scale. I feel like I got distracted, but I can't stop my distraction now. (laughs) What else am I surrounded by? It's so funny that I turned around and saw this because Kit is a guest on this podcast. So it's nice, simpatico. What else am I seeing? Um, So we're in the Nest Artisan showroom. So we, of the 400 businesses in the Guild, this is a selection of some of their product. These are largely examples of our design collaboration. So when we partner with artists in business to iterate on their design to make it more market ready. So this is brass cast and carved horn and bone from Kenya. So these pieces were Mayats. Oh, they're um, lovely. They're beautiful. They're fish shaped. <laughs> we'll share some um, pictures yeah, we can and send links pictures the of all of them. These bags are an incredible story. It was a basket weaving cooperative in Swaziland and they were making you can see like the more traditional kind of trivet here um, which were more commodity type products and then we had a fellow who was the former handbag designer for rag and bone go to Swaziland and they co-created a new label and then through a series of Nest Fellowship we brought in Italian master craftsmen who trained the women on leather so the women are making the entire bag start to finish including all the leather so it's that Um, marrying of design with exactly and now these have been in matches and all over the place and they're very charismatic exactly and um, a much higher price point than you know obviously like a placement the brand is now called coco gorgeous but it grew out of a nest fellowship this is so interesting (laughs) i love this idea of marrying those two things what are the challenges that come with working that way Mm -hmm. and we touched on the challenges that are inherent in the outworker sector is that Mm -hmm. even how you would say it outworker sector (laughs) but that um you know there's a lack of transparency potentially that we don't know what sorts of conditions people are working in in their homes yeah is that the biggest problem that you have and how do you solve it and what other problems or challenges do you face in working in this way Sure. I think there's two different things. You know, on the one side with our artisan guild, a lot of the businesses are social enterprises or cooperatives. And so the challenges much more for them are around product iteration. How do they make something that speaks to a Western client when they don't have access to that type of knowledge or skill set or trends in their kind of daily operations? And so a lot of our work is centered around bringing business development and growth and market development to those businesses on the one side. So I think that's been a huge challenge. Um, And then on the visibility side, I think that's kind of twofold. I think that a lot of brands, because the workers are in their homes and there is this lack of visibility, there's been a hesitancy to move beyond kind of a marketing campaign or kind of a feel-good product at the holidays that was artisan-made to really incorporating them into their supply chain because they haven't had the systems to ensure worker well-being. And then I think in the process of realizing that and trying to address it, which I know we're going to get to, we kind of uncovered this other world world of what we call our hand workers who are already in supply chains doing 
beating or buttonholes or, or other things. And so I think there's kind of two populations of, of workers that kind of benefit from the work. But how are you at Nest ensuring that conditions are appropriate and that no one's being exploited in this supply chain? Mm-hmm. So we actually, in partnership with West Elm, they were our first partner. We started an industry-wide coalition of brands and multilateral partners to create the first set of compliance standards for work happening in homes or small workshops. In over three years, we co-created the set of standards. It's 130 different standards. But then also, more importantly, I was going to say it's going to be the a training. Huge endeavor. It was a huge endeavor. The training and assessment processes that go along with it. So the standards was just one piece. Now, how do you actually implement those standards? And then when there are issues, scalably and affordably remediate the issues. And so it took three years and a lot of industry participation. We did over 40 pilots in five countries and then launched the set of standards and the whole assessment model at the United Nations. Um, And it will carry a consumer seal of ethical handcraft, um, which is exciting because we can bring consumers into the story. So there'd be a visual symbol Mm -hmm. that's recognizable so you can really just look at it and think, I get that that's, is this a nest seal? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. What's it look like? It's kind of a merging of a bird and a hand. Ah. It's quite beautiful, actually. We, yeah. we're, we're very happy with it. Fascinating. Yeah. I think the complexity of this subject can sometimes put people off. I imagine that designers, for instance, mm-hmm. think, I'd love to work with some of these craftspeople who've got such incredible heritage behind their practice, but how on earth do you do it? Like, it's mm-hmm. very, very difficult. How do you help designers connect with with the artisans? How do you do it? Yeah, I think one of the things we've seen is that um, over the course of kind of factory production, there's been a lot of processes put into place in fashion brands that are designed to work very well with a factory, but not so much with an artisan. There's very fast well, timelines. Speed, right? speed is, you know, has negative consequences in the factory too, but it's almost impossible in an artisan setting. And so fast fashion's definitely played a toll. Pricing, you know, I think there's a whole host of things, um, but also just communication. I think we've seen a lot of brands who, and their production and design teams, are used to communicating with a factory, and and so tone is different, approach is different, and um, well, yeah, I mean, it's a whole new way yeah. of working, isn't and it? So, uh, yeah, you're not just sending files and saying, "Come exactly. on, then, I want this in four weeks." Exactly. I mean, Kit tells a story on this podcast actually, which is very interesting, about how she produced her bandani fabrics in India, and when she first went to do this, they had far too much production and it just couldn't be done so they had to add in some stuff that was printed in a different way in order to get it over the line and she said now we understand that we need to have lots more time yeah yeah and you know fashion isn't really into having lots more time (laughs) exactly that's exactly true so I'd say we spend about 50% of our time working with artisans and about 50% of our time working with brands on how to better work with artisans and what best practices are how they can approach their timelines one of my favorite examples actually same Varanasi weavers in working with Mayette the brand they wanted to work with these weavers and so they were having some quality issues and miscommunications with the weavers about what to produce so Mayette was like okay we'll do something very easy we'll do a solid silk because then we'll like reduce and then they didn't realize that that's actually the hardest thing to produce hand woven because (laughs) you don't see the imperfections right because that's why things are so complicated because if you mess up then it hides it and so they actually we're trying to do the right thing, but ended up asking the weavers to do the hardest thing. And so, but things like miscommunications like that happen all the time. And so how can we better arm both sides to, to succeed? But that is 
humanity, isn't it? And I think that sometimes we forget that fashion is also a human endeavor. It's, mm -hmm. it's obviously we know that when we're wearing it, we're feeling humanized. Mm -hmm. But it's hands that make our clothes, and obviously humans aren't machines. Yeah. You can't just expect it to be seamless, can you? Yeah. No, and I think, frankly, our communications training and best practices for working with artisans, probably factory workers would appreciate some of that too, because mm. I think that we forget that there, even when it's mechanized, there are there are humans the behind those saying, exactly. Uh, machine. exactly. Said this fifty times on yeah. this podcast, but it's true, and I think yeah. we we need to hear it fifty yeah. times. Yeah. So Rebecca, I first started thinking about the artisanal and also actually about ethical fashion because I interviewed someone called Simona Cipriani mm -hmm. who began the Ethical Fashion Initiative under the aegis of the UN. Mm -hmm. Do you know him? I know him very well. Great. <laughs> I mean, he's a powerhouse and full of full of enthusiasm about how we can open up these conversations and change the world. And I loved it. He was really inspirational to me. But my question is... How can the UN help us work in this space? And not just what Simone does, but what you do and what the UN can give in terms of a framework for setting up new ways of doing business in some of these places. I think Simone has been a leader in this and there are others at the UN as well. Um, and we actually launched our compliance program at the United Nations with Simone present and the UN Office of Partnerships. But I think for the first time in this is really exciting. I think the time is right for our new handworker economy because I think that both industry and multilaterals like the UN see the power of this sector. And so I think there More is economic increasingly conversations around supply chains and the importance of supply chains and this workforce that can't be ignored and that we can't solely look to the industry to self-police and self-regulate like there's nest obviously does a lot of that working with brands to self-regulate their supply chains but ultimately we need other solutions besides that or outside of that or in addition to that um, and so i think it's really exciting to see bodies like the united nations whose power is convening globally and helping set agendas for entire industries or entire sectors find excitement and importance in this world um, which i think is relatively new with in the last you know year yeah. two or three do you think we're on the but cusp I think of big I, change yes absolutely um, and I think technology is playing a role in that I think gender is playing a role in that so I think it's an exciting time the next few years are going to be I think massive in terms of consumer awareness and visibility yes yeah. <laughs> that's what I want yeah the UN also comes with a feeling of great trust we trust them what do you think yeah. is trust a really important factor in this I think trust and commonality. I think one of the powerful things of the UN is that they were able to set a global agenda. And that's true for fashion. That's true for supply chains. That's true for agriculture. That's true for health and medical professionals. And so it provides this kind of overarching framework for all of us. I mean, not even just industries, for humans to better understand how we can address the most common and most pressing needs of our time um, in a way where all of us are fighting the same fight in some ways. And so I think that kind of both the trust and the kind of commonality and language building around seeing all of these efforts as incremental to larger global goals is really important. And yes, let's see fashion in those terms. Yeah, I mean, exactly. I think that's so powerful. Yeah. And also has been missing. Yeah. Rebecca, were you a little kid who imagined being a diplomat <laughs> or someone who saw yourself sitting at the United Nations table? 
What I think is funny is that the origin of Nest, I'm actually a social worker by training, and which is the exact opposite. So I imagine myself sitting alone in a room with one particular woman <laughs> and helping her with her issues. Yeah, and totally my, my issue with, um, and the, the reason I started Nest was because the year I graduated with my degree in social work, Muhammad Yunus had just won the Nobel Peace Prize for microfinance. And it seemed to me that the opposite of social work had happened, where at the time in international development circles, which I was sort of a part in my schooling, everyone called it a solution to poverty. And people started scaling microfinance very, very, very quickly. What does that and mean? So organizations, he won the Nobel Peace Prize. People thought it was a great idea. And so people started giving loans to women all over the world without really vetting the model. And obviously he was amazing and did really powerful work, but not everybody who replicated him carried his same principles. And so you started seeing high interest rates. You started seeing people taking out loans to repay loans. You saw suicides in India when people couldn't repay them. You saw a lot of negative consequences of that. And to me, it felt like policy got ahead of social work or individual people. And so I wanted to create a model that was a little bit more holistic and a little bit more human centric than some of the existing models for Mm. international development. And then, you know, 11 years later, I'm now in the policy side. And But I think we carry with us that um, I think it's very integral to the way that the organization runs and operates, that the human is very important. Our assessment model for compliance, we visit people's yeah. homes and we talk to the individual woman and you can't self-report compliance. You can't do it from afar. Like if you want to understand your supply chain, you have to see it and you have to know the people in it. And so um, we carry that same approach to our work, even if we're trying to bring it to kind of a larger sector now. What was it about social work then that attracted you as a young person? You know, I think I always wanted to do something to be making a change. I think that that was the kind of social pull was was really strong. It came from my parents, for sure. And they were both very socially active. My dad was a serial entrepreneur. So the combination probably makes sense in hindsight. What sort of businesses did he have? He was in technology, but kind of pulled through his ideals and into our life in in many ways. And um, my mom and my aunt actually both started nonprofits too. So so this was sort of my upbringing. But um, where did you grow up? Was it St. Louis? (laughs) St. Louis? Yeah, I want to say St. Louis, which <laughs> lots of people do. Totally <laughs> no way, I've been getting that wrong my whole life. What about the film? Meet me in St. Louis. I no, no, that's no the way. right name of the film, but that's not the name of the. Get film. out! Yeah, sorry, my ignorance from Hollywood. I, that's, that's I blame fine. Hollywood. That's totally well, fine. Thank you. I've learned something yeah. else that I didn't expect to learn. <laughs> what was it like growing up there? It was good. Like, what you kind know, of childhood did he have? Were you a person who was always volunteering? Were you sporty? Were you musical? I was definitely always volunteering, not sporty or musical. So I, you know, that my path was set. Were you fashiony? I was not fashiony. I'm still not fashiony. You can't see what I'm wearing right now, but I'm definitely not fashiony. That I bring other people bring that to the nest world. I'm still the social worker, but um, and I have a great appreciation for it. It's just I'm just not that. Did you Um, see yourself being a practicing social worker who would see clients from I don't know prison? Yes. Is that what you thought? And I until the day I graduated, and then I was looking for work (laughs) and wasn't finding something that I felt was quite right and then I noticed that the school had a business plan competition totally on a whim did not have the idea hadn't conceived of the idea until I saw that competition had the idea applied for it sort of again on a whim and won and my parents said my stepfather being very practical said 
will help support you for one year. But if you can't afford your own health insurance by the end of that year, then you need to get a real job. Well, wow. That's quite <laughs> so a short luckily, time. I know. So luckily I got that grant and I put my head down and by the end of the year I was affording my own health insurance. And so here we are 11 years later. He's very proud. Um, well done. <laughs> but you know, well, obviously very dedicated and driven. Like you were able to set that goal yeah. for yourself and go, all right, I'm going to yeah. get the health insurance. Yeah. I wouldn't have. I'd have been like 10 years later with no insurance. <laughs> I wasn't necessarily going to ask you this, but I am now. What qualities does it take to bring something like this off the ground? Obviously, you need a great team, but what do you need to be able to steer this? I think the best advice I was ever given, and I still think it's true today, is that people talk a lot about the visionary part of being a social entrepreneur, seeing a different future and wanting a different future. And that's definitely a very important part of it. We have to to see a vision of where we're going. But equally important is being able to look at the mountains and then transition your gaze to your feet and start walking. So I think lots of people get stuck in the vision and then don't translate that to like, well, today I need to wake up and do this and this and this to get to that vision. And so I think that it's the combination of being able to have vision and walk to it. So it is the power. That's where the power is, right? So if you can actually break it down into tangible steps that we can get there, I think that's that's what we need. Absolutely. That was very powerful. I'm going to cut that bit out and make it into a special <laughs> promo clip and everyone's going to quote it. I want to ask you about India. I know that you volunteered in India and when I left university I went to India for nearly a year mm-hmm. and there's something very, having never been there before, I found that when I went there it really got under my skin. I found it absolutely fascinating and riveting but it's also really emotional. Mm-hmm. And I wrote some notes and I was thinking about it's emotional from all the senses because it smells different from where I'm from. It looks different. The food's different. But also there's this, there's so many extremes. Mm-hmm. There's so much poverty. Mm-hmm. I mean, certainly that I saw a lot of joy as well, but I did see really confronting poverty that I wasn't used to. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you might like to tell us a little bit about what it meant to you to go and volunteer there. Were you in Delhi? I was in Delhi for that experience. I think, you know, what you said is is so true. And I think people who have been to India have similar experiences where you like love it and hate it all at the same time and you don't know what to think and it's jarring in so many ways because of the intensity of the smell and the sound and the chaos and it's never ending and it's, you know, India never ceases to amaze me that any time of day or night it's busy and crowded and loud and so it can be 3 a.m. when you're going to the airport to catch a flight and it's still busy and crowded and loud and in just a way that nowhere else is but I think the other thing about it and I had been somewhat well-traveled growing up but India is different than many places in what you just said that the poverty is right there and you see it and, and you can't avoid it and you can't escape it and um the sheer, I mean, this is true in the United States too, and certainly in St. Louis where I'm from, but in India, it's so much in closer proximity, the difference between wealth and poverty. It's it's very close together in India and you can see the discrepancy and the disparity. I'm starting um, to feel so, like that about America though. Oh, frankly. no, St. Louis where I'm from is, is the same. I mean, you like, you know, two different exits on mm-hmm. the highway and you see the difference in poverty, um, but which is, is amazing. But but, it, but you still have to drive America. a whole different exit. There is still a separation. In the U.S., you can avoid Like, you know, in the neighborhood where I grew up, you wouldn't know poverty existed. You'd have to get in your car and drive to it. And so there's something... Whereas all those little kids at the train station, you can't escape it, can you? And then I think, you know, for a lot of people, it was true for me, but I've heard other people say this about India too, it, you know, it fundamentally changes your chemistry. You see that and you can't go back. So then I think it solidifies in you a call to action for for a lot of people, Mm. Um, certainly for me. But... Mm. um, what were you doing there? Were you working in a school? I did cross-cultural solutions, which is a volunteer program, a matchmaking volunteer program. And at the time, I was interested in social work. And one of the aspects of social work I was interested in was movement therapy. 
And, um, and so the organization that they partnered me with was uh, preschool through trade school for 50% of the kids were disabled, mostly with polio. Oh, right. And so the school oh, made its God. own prosthetics and taught the kids how to use them. And they ended up leaving with a trade, which was also really powerful. So the idea of finding employment for people. And so that was the program that I was working with. It's actually very interesting because you can take very clear threads from that story and apply them to what you do at Nest. Yes, absolutely. I mean, you've used the word matchmaking, <laughs> but it is to do with creating opportunity. Not is it creating or is it finding opportunity that already exists and linking it Correct. to people who need it? I mean, I, I don't know. How right. do you phrase it? I, I was thinking then again about Simona Cipriani, who loves to say that thing, not charity, comma, work. Yeah. And I think it's similar. I think there's been a movement against terms like empowerment because we're not really? empowering people. They already have power and oh, we're helping facilitate. it's a bit condescending? Yeah. Or, or maybe not condescending. I, the people probably, it might be kind of semantics and overthinking it, but I think in a lot of ways, the idea of that we're harnessing power that people already have is important. And, and it's, a, you know, I think one of the things words that I love, are really words are They're really, really important. important. And when we get them wrong, we need to understand that language evolves. And I'm yep. pulling a face now because it's so, it's actually very tricky, this territory to navigate, yeah. because as language evolves and as conversations evolve, we need to change the words. Exactly. We need to change the words when they don't suit us anymore. But I think we get scared to do that or lazy. Yeah. Scared. And but actually, it's terrifying to use the wrong word. When you said that, I was like, oh, God, should I be not saying empowerment? <laughs> Is that like a sort of bit icky I don't know like I'm giving you this empowerment exactly. darling here you are exactly sort of awful. I think there's some yeah. some pieces of that and we certainly okay. sometimes use the word too but I think we're trying not to as much um, for those reasons I think but I think one of the reasons I love craft and working in this sector is that there's also this like us and them thing you know I, I have a five-year-old and a three-year-old and so we're starting to teach them about what we do for a living and the world and and there's this thing about teaching about poverty and issues that it's like those are poor people and we are not and so we are helping them and it's like this Awful. us and them thing that is is not what you want to be teaching and not the way you want to see the issue and um, and so one of the things I think is so wonderful about craft is that they might not have the same resources we might have so they might be quote-unquote poor but they have an incredible skill and I already said I don't I don't have any of those fashion or, or artisan skills and so when you think about um, it levels the playing field in some way it's it's that they have incredible work and talent that people in our country and brands want to be able to leverage and use and so it's a different thing well, they're be- providing that and we're providing other things it becomes an about partnership partnership and again like that is a word which is fraught with cliche yeah. <laughs> but in yeah. this case it is meaningful yeah exactly because it's partner, you have to look at it as a partnership of equals. Exactly. Mm, very interesting. I actually want to bring up something that I read in the report from your, I want to say symposium. Do we yeah. say convening? convening symposium. I'm going to start nice saying words. convening because I love it. This is like a massive language lesson, which is my favourite thing. I used to read the dictionary for a laugh, but I still do. But from your December convening at the United Nations when you introduced the nest seal, and I feel that it was Barack Kalmak, who is from Parsons, who said this. Mm-hmm. Correct me if I'm wrong. We will share a link to the report. But he said, we can move from cultural appropriation to cultural celebration. And I'm very interested in this idea. Um, he's brilliant and, and on our advisory board. But he, you know, I think one of the things that we've seen, and, and he's obviously Dean of Fashion at Parsons. So, but I think historically students have been taught to be inspired through things. And so that's sometimes art, that's architecture, that's the world around them. And, and it needs to go all the way back to education that 
you can be inspired by other cultures, but you can't actually appropriate it. You actually have to celebrate and attribute it to those places. And so I think we're starting to see an understanding of what that means and how you both incorporate techniques, but also not take a technique and mass produce it in another location, which is is something that I think you see with artists in production all the time. Um, and so as we work with more designers and as we partner them with artists and communities, how they co-collaborate and co-create new designs. Exactly, exactly. And honest kind of frank conversations about design and design iteration and different communities and different artists and businesses feel differently about iterating on cultural design. Some feel quite strongly that you don't for symbolic, religious, spiritual reason, would, you know, for whatever reasons, historic, um, that they feel that way. And then others are quite excited to iterate on the designs. And so it really comes back to the community and, and kind of their feelings on, on the process. By celebrating culture, you need to include the people who are producing the culture. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's really an obvious thing, but for some reason, we seem to have not really clicked with that in the broader fashion conversation. No. And I think Simone and I agree on this, and we both push on it a lot, but I think you can be inspired by those communities and then make with them. So, you know, if you're if you like Maasai beating, work with the Maasai community. You don't have to take that idea and take it to China or Southeast Asia. Yes. Um, and so, I, again, so it comes back yeah. to, to find those people and collaborate and partner with them so that it's a celebration, not an appropriation. I love it so much. Yeah. Is there anything that you can share with us about design partnerships that you have going on? Sure. I think one of a, a really exciting partnership we have right now going on is that we partnered with Livia Firth's EcoAge. And so we partnered with them, Swarovski, Matches, and the Commonwealth of Nations. And Kit was there. And, and Kit was there, Walker yes. was there. Um, part of the model was that all the artists and businesses that decided to join this collaboration they get added to the nest guild so they'll get access to ongoing resources but we were really excited that um, some of our artisan partners um, who were already part of the nest network were also included and so one of them was a business called quasi designs based in swaziland they do the most incredible you say paper beads and i think people have a preconception about what that means but this is not that it's just stunning tightly wound paper that they're working in um, with women in swaziland swaziland's a, a super interesting country obviously located right next to South Africa. It's a monarchy and they, I can't remember how many wives he has a lot. The the king has quite a few wives. And so there's just kind of an interesting culture around Mm. women and women's rights in Mm. in that country. And so working with women to provide income is is really important there. And our partners there are are amazing. Um, And Quasi is one of them. So we are thrilled to see them in in the collaboration. And I think... um, elevates the conversation in so many ways like again that this isn't highly localized it's not super niche and these women are incredibly skilled in many ways and so you think about the luxury fashion houses and the kind of power that they've put behind making sure that artisans in France and Italy are revered and that there's preservation of those techniques and then you think about women in India or Swaziland practicing similarly complex, similarly lifelong learned techniques that don't get that same kind of veneration. And so to be able to put them on the same platform and and give them the kind of prestige and honor that they deserve is, is so important. How good is Livia Firth? She's amazing. She's fabulous. Isn't she, she is fabulous. We, Everything she does is just gold. I, love I it. went with her and her NGO that she co-founded, the Circle to Brussels. They hear them advocate for 
living wages. But one of the things, speaking of language, that I thought was really interesting is that in their panel, they said that sustainability is such a a tough word because right now the status quo for all of these brands who are profiting on the backs of of workers is quite sustainable for them. They could could sustain that for a long time. And so language is important. And so how do we make sure that that we're using the right terms to talk about some of these really important things that that it could quite be it could be quite sustainable for companies to continue going we we need to make it not sustainable for them to continue with the status quo fascinating finish up by just telling me what you hope for the future of nest two things you know i think the very short term historically there's been a lot of no homeworker policies companies have wanted to not work with women in their homes because they're the fear of invisibility of, of that work which pushed a lot of the work underground and, and caused a lot of issues and so for me in a year i would love for a company to publicly say that they had a no homeworker policy to be like they said i have an anti-woman policy like i want to take away all the myths about homework and make sure that it's a viable option for women. So that's the, women, the very course, short term. And just to throw this in there so that people can get that in their head, it's about potentially being at home for your children. Exactly. Being able to juggle family life yeah. and actually earn a buck at the same exactly. time. Exactly. If you're in a rural location, it means not having to urban migrate to live in the dormitory of a factory. If you live in a place where gender discrimination is still strong and your husband maybe doesn't want you to work outside the home, it gives you opportunity. So there's so much power there if we can harness that. Um, and then, you know, I think that's for the industry. I think the next step is that consumers know the term homeworker, handworker, and they want, um, they realize production's happening outside the factory and they push the envelope on what transparency means um, for the sector so you're going to make the new handworker economy I'm, happen Rebecca we are. <laughs> one step at a time oh, it's getting hard my parents feel that I'm defending you I tell them all that they are wrong because I love you thank you for listening to wardrobe crisis to learn more about our guests and the issues that we've spoken about today hop on over to my website which is clairepress.com forward slash podcast You can get in touch there and I really hope you will. I'd love to hear from you. And you can also find links to my social media. And finally, if you're enjoying the show, please head over to iTunes and subscribe. You know what they say, first in, best dressed. Subscribers are first to find out when there's a new episode and it also helps other people discover wardrobe crisis. So I'd love your help with that because the more people who switch on to ethical fashion, the better. Music is by Montaigne. She recorded this special acoustic version of Because I Love You, which is from her Glorious Heights album, especially for Wardrobe Crisis. How good is that? Thank you, Montaigne. Because I love you, my parents feel that this is a waste of time. I tell them we're okay, I won't admit that I am blind. My friends will feel that I'm carrying a steel. I tell them all that they are wrong. Because I love you, because I love you. Because I love you Because I love you